Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. You'll remember that when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul admonished the believers to break fellowship with the unrepentant man who was committing sexual immorality. He said, you're tolerating these things, you're excusing these behaviors, but instead you should be breaking fellowship even with this person until such time that he has come to his senses, that he understands what he is doing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 4 through 5, we read this, So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And we, if you remember, we talked about it at that time and what that meant and what that implied. And, but he says, hand this person over or, or allow this person to be dealt with so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. So he was saying, this is a person who has done something wrong and in order to set things right, let the Lord have his work in him. But the goal, the intent is that he would be restored or that he would be saved or that he would come back to the Lord. Now when we get here to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this, ep this new episode that Paul has written to the Corinthians, it seems most likely that Paul is stating that that person referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 has in fact repented, his spirit has been saved, and that he should be received afresh in fellowship. He should be restored in fellowship. Now there are some Bible commentators who feel that the person referred to here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is someone else. Someone who opposed Paul and grieved him personally. Not, not the other 1 Corinthians 5 person, but this is, this is probably somebody else. This is a, a speculation as such. In fact, when we get to 1st, oh pardon me, in fact when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul refers to godly sorrow that brings repentance which leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And in explaining that and in stating that, he seems to be suggesting that there were other cases of repentance and restoration in the church than just the person referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The important point here though the important point for us is not to figure out or not to determine who exactly Paul is speaking about. 
Is it the person from 1 Corinthians 5? Is it somebody else? Is it a man? Is it a woman? What did they do? You know, that's not the intent of Paul's letter or the word of the Lord to us in these verses. What we have to learn, rather, is the lesson from how the church is counseled to renew fellowship with this person. There's some specific instruction here, regardless of who the person is and what they did, there's a specific instruction here as to how the church should restore this person, how they should receive this person, how they should be in fellowship with this person. And that's what we need to pay attention to and learn from. So this morning, I'm, I'm making some introductory comments and points to set the context for what is really at the core of this passage, the need. So this morning, we're really looking at what is the need for love and forgiveness. And we're understanding how to fulfill the biblical mandate for every believer to live in love and forgiveness, in fellowship with one another. This is such a constant theme in the Bible. This is such a constant truth that keeps coming up all over the place that we're not to be isolated, that we're members of one body, that we should not be looking to do things on our own, but rather look to do things in concert with the other members of the body of Christ. This is such a powerful theme throughout the Word of God that we can't help but encounter it repeatedly. Repeatedly in these scriptures, we keep coming back to this idea. This fellowship that needs to be there. So the idea that somebody has fallen out of fellowship and then needs to be restored should be very important to us. Because if we, we're not just in fellowship with those who are always agreeing with us. We're not in fellowship always with people who are always doing the right thing. If you're not doing the right thing, I'm not in fellowship with you. No. The Bible is saying to us when things go wrong, when things break, when things are out of fellowship, you still have to be striving and saying, Lord God, what do we need to do to restore in fellowship? To be one with another, to be one united with the other, to be receiving that person with love and forgiveness. Next week, we'll go into more depth on how to do these things and some of the background and the things that are affecting this, these things of, these themes of love and forgiveness. But as I said, I want to set the context this week. And the first point I want to note is this, that we avoid excessive sorrow when we restore fellowship through love and forgiveness. We avoid excessive sorrow. When a person is convicted of sin, when there is a sense of guilt and remorse, maybe even regret, and there is a break in true and meaningful fellowship, that can lead to excessive sorrow. Not godly sorrow, but excessive sorrow. Why? Because in the church and even for those outside of the church, who are dealing with difficult situations, when there is that conviction of sin, when you know that you have done something wrong, when your conscience bothers you, when you are struggling with how to deal with this situation, you have that opportunity to either press into the Lord and to cast these cares on Him and to have Him restore you or to say, I'm no good. I can't do this right. I don't know how to go forward. 
and you go into excessive sorrow. This kind of excessive sorrow is what is tied to depression, to heightened anxiety, and to bitterness, anger, resentment. This is not where you're responding to conviction in God. You're responding to conviction in yourself. You're trying to manage it. You're trying to handle this problem. And the people around you, instead of helping you to come to the Lord, condemn you in your sin or in your failure and cause you to go even further away from God. So that's what Paul is referring to when he says when these kinds of things happen, when there's a break in fellowship, there's the potential to go into excessive sorrow. Just breaking you down. The reason that suicide is increasing the way that it is, and even amongst young people, that suicide rates have gone way high, is because instead of being able to find a release and a relief for the conviction, for the issue at hand, they have decided to try to handle, or they are trying to handle this excessive sorrow on their own. And they cannot do it. We cannot do it. So this becomes important for us as a church. It becomes important for us as a church to deal with the people in the church, but it also becomes important for us in the church to deal with those outside the church. We have to deal with them with the same kind of compassion and care and love. We have to say, oh, you know, well, they deserve it. No. We have to be able to say, no, here's a person who is struggling with excessive sorrow. They have come into this kind of situation where they know that they are unable to redeem themselves. They, and so what do you do? If you don't turn to the Lord, then you say, okay, then it's the end. I'll end it all because I, I, I have no way out. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know what the relief when the release will be. It's better to end my life. Instead, godly sorrow, as I've already mentioned, and we'll consider it in more detail when we get to 2 Corinthians 7, godly sorrow brings true repentance, which means a turning from, Repentance in the biblical sense is not about just feeling sorry for what you did. It is to say, I've been going in this direction. I turn around and return to the Lord. I turn around and I restore my relationship with the Lord. The, anything that caused me to break my relationship with God, I, I'm diligent now to restore that. That's what godly sorrow with true repentance means. It's not regret. It's not to be so so upset and to be so depressed, discouraged. No, it's to be able to turn to the Lord, not to turn away from Him or not to continue to remain turned away from the Lord. So when godly sorrow comes with true repentance, with no regrets, it brings a cleansing of sin. It brings a renewal in our life. Even as we were singing that the power of the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, is that it cleanses us from our sins. That's the promise of the Lord. It's not be punished for your sin. You know, just suffer in your sin. How dare you do this thing to me and to anybody else. That's how we tend to deal with one another. 
But the appropriation of God's sacrifice of the blood that Jesus shed is to say, because you have done this for me, I can be cleansed of my sin. I can't do this on my own, but I can be cleansed of my sin and I can return back to the Lord Jesus. And so, as a person truly repents, as they find that they can return to the Lord, the primary means that that person is renewed and encouraged and able to move forward in the Lord is to be in the fellowship of the church. The local church becomes critically important. You cannot return in that kind of restoration, in that kind of coming to the Lord in its fullness on your own. You will experience the personal work of the Lord Jesus in you. But that total work of that completeness in you, of that total cleansing in you, of the joy of the Lord that can be your strength is realized when we are joined to the local church and there are people that come alongside you. They're not excusing your sin. There was a need for repentance. But when they are seeing you turn this way, they say, come, come, come. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I'm with you. I'm praying for you. I'm standing with you. I want to encourage you. That's the role of the local church. The local church is not in place to find the faults of people. The local church is in place to encourage that person in their turning back to the Lord. That's the purpose. So we come alongside that person and we say, come, come, come. Let's, let's keep going. Let's move in this way. So we in the local church are called to maintain, to build these ongoing relationships of compassion and care for the people in the church and the people outside the church. Not condemnation, not judgment, not finger wagging. That we would say to them, let me come alongside you. Let me come alongside you. Let me stand with you. The church is not called to be someone's judge or the one who carries out their sentence. That is not our role. The Bible doesn't describe us in that way. The Bible describes God as being the judge. God is the one who takes care of things. God is meeting out true justice and correct justice. We don't have to do any of that. That's not our role. Our role is to love people, to forgive them, and to care for them so that we can sing like David sang in Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help, and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. You see, the Lord brings us from death to life. The Lord brings us from darkness to light. He brings us into the land of the living to fellowship with his people. That's why David continues in Psalm 30, verse 4, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. When the Lord brings us from death to life, he puts us into a community of believers and says, Oh, join with these people and now sing. Sing, praise, worship, be enjoying the things of the Lord. For his anger, God's anger, lasts only a moment. By the way, our anger lasts a whole lot more than God's anger. Our, for, for God's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. 
our favor tends to be a momentary thing, and our anger tends to be long, long you know, we, we, we do just the opposite. But our God's anger lasts only a moment. His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. I was depressed and I didn't even know why. I was discouraged. To you, O Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If, if I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? God is not wanting for us to go down to the pit. He doesn't say, oh, you sin, you deserve this punishment. He's saying, no, I want you to be restored so that you may praise, worship, sing, rejoice, be joined with the children of God. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing, my mourning, my sorrow into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and you clothed me with joy. Oh, we'll be coming even at the end of this, this service today. I'll be reminding you that we are to clothe ourselves with all of these attributes that the Lord calls us to. But the word is reminding us that he takes our mourning, our wailing, our sorrow, our excessive burdens and he changes it. He transforms it to joy. He clothes us with joy. And he says, it is for our good so that our heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. When we were finishing up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 24, we read how Paul said, we work with you for your joy because it is by faith in the Lord and in his salvation that you stand firm. So we work with you for your joy. How do we receive the joy of the Lord and how do we do this so that we can come to those that are in excessive sorrow and build them up? We love. We forgive. We reach out with compassion. And we say, oh Lord God, help us as a church to do that. Help us as a church to reach out to those that are hurting. Because when we do that, the desperate fellowship that is required, people need to be in community. You may think you're doing fine, and you may be fine for a little while, but you desperately need community. We were built for that. We were created for that. And you need that fellowship of believers who will stand with you, who will pray with you, and who will exercise, who will live in love. And forgiveness. So the reason, one of the reasons we want to live in love and forgiveness, the context for it is that we would be able to avoid excessive sorrow for any in our midst. Any in our midst would not be affected by excessive sorrow, but instead would have the joy of the Lord that will be their strength. The second reason we want to live in love and forgiveness is that we obey the Lord when we restore fellowship with somebody through love and forgiveness. We are obeying the Lord. And when the Bible here 
says to us that to restore someone in fellowship by reaffirming our love for them and forgiving them, it says that means we are obedient in everything. Obedient in everything. Sometimes we compartmentalize these things and, I, and we say, I'm obedient to the Lord in doing whatever, right? Keeping myself pure and holy. I'm obedient to the Lord in observing these things. I'm obedient to the Lord in praying without ceasing. I'm obedient to the Lord in, you know, taking care of these things in raising up my children these ways. And we sort of think of too highly of ourselves even in terms of our obedience with the Lord. But it is equally necessary for us to be obeying the Lord in loving and forgiving somebody else. He said, forgive as I forgave you. Restore as I restore you. What do we do? We say, I'm obedient to the Lord in all these things, but there's no way that I can forgive this person. But it is the command of the Lord. It is his standard for us that we would obey. What's been happening in the recent past, and you will find plenty of articles about this, and especially as some of these horrendous events happen around us, you will find more and more people saying, there's no need to say that you forgive. The fact that the church in South Carolina, the members of the church there, forgave Dylan Roof for coming into the church and shooting and killing nine people in the church, the fact that the church did that, the church members said, we forgive this man. There were lots of articles that said they should not have done that because that means that they have excused his crime. That means that they have not looked for the true justice. That means that they have not had him suffer and pay for what he did. And this whole Judeo-Christian idea of forgiveness, this is a wrong thing. This is actually hurting us. This is causing us to, you know, to overlook things. You'll, you'll hear this, right? This is a common sentiment that's being expressed today, and it's a charge that's being brought against the church, brought against Christianity in particular. The idea that you would forgive, and the claim or the statement on that is that there shouldn't be this kind of behavior. Well, let me make this point. The Bible is not asking us to overlook. The Bible is not asking us not to confront sin. The Bible is not saying you can do whatever you want. The Bible is not saying that God's grace extends without anything. Right? I mean, it just, of course, His grace is poured out to all people. But He's, he's, not, he's not saying that sin is okay. That all these things are okay. That if you kill somebody, it's okay. None of that. And, you know, w w even when somebody offends us or somebody comes against us in some way and we have an opportunity to forgive them and they come reluctantly or maybe even willingly, maybe out of great sorrow, excessive sorrow, they come and say, I'm so sorry I did this. What do we say? We say, it's okay. But it's not okay, is it? Because in our heart, we haven't really forgiven that person. We haven't accepted their, their statement to us that to please forgive them. We say, oh, okay, it's all right. Okay, it's okay. But we haven't actually appropriated what the Lord means when he says forgiveness. We're trying to do this in our strength. 
And in that kind of forgiveness, in that kind of response back to another person, no, it's not appropriate. If someone commits a crime, they've got to go through the consequences of it. You can't simply forgive it. And many times, in many ways, the church has overlooked or even excused or covered up for the egregious sins of the people in the church, leaders in particular. There's no, there's no justification for it. That's not what the Bible is saying. So, when somebody around you who is not believing in Christ, who's not reading the Word of God, who doesn't know what the Bible is really saying, they say, oh, all you Christians, your notion of forgiveness, it's all wrong. Let's not be like that. You should not excuse. And you can be very, very clear to respond to them and say, I agree with you that when things are done wrong, when there is sin that is abounding, it needs to be addressed in the right way. However, let me tell you what the love of God really means. Let me tell you what the Bible is talking about when it says forgive. Let me show you how the Holy Spirit is able to work this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus into our lives in a way that transforms us. When we could not save ourselves from our sin, the Bible says that the Lord Jesus has done this. And that's what I want to share with you. That's what I want to tell you. Which brings me to this point, last point that I want to make about this context that we're setting this morning about love and forgiveness. And that is that even as we restore fellowship with somebody, even as we're doing this, you know, and restoring through love and forgiveness, and we're obeying the Lord, we are reaching out to them so that they don't get depressed or become excessively sorrowful, there's one very important phrase that is there at the end of this passage. I almost call this, this series the devil's schemes, part one, two, and three, or whatever, how many of our parts we need to go through. But think about it. The Bible says that when we live in unforgiveness, when we do not love, when we allow that kind of conflict to remain in the church, we've actually fallen prey to the devil's schemes. The devil comes to kill, to seek, to destroy, to steal, to divide. And Satan's goal for us is to remain in excessive worldly sorrow, and to remain out of fellowship, and to ultimately go down to the pit. That's what he would love to see happen. That's what David says, you know, if I would remain in this condition, I would go down to the pit. And that Satan would like nothing better. So Satan's schemes, his deceptions, his everything that he's doing is so that we would be in fact out of fellowship with God and out of fellowship with the church. The antidote to this divisive poison of the evil one is the joy-inducing love and forgiveness of God the Father expressed through Jesus, made real in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, and sustained by each one of us doing our part in the body of Christ. That's what the Lord is calling us to. So this morning, I want to bring us to this point of response or application. And again, like I said, you know, we will go through more of this in the next week, two weeks, whatever it may be. But last week, 
We were reminded from Matthew chapter 24 verse 12 that in the last days, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Matthew chapter 24 verse 10 states that at that time, in the last days, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hurt each other. And the word that is used there and the meaning of this, that phrase is of giving offense and taking offense. And we'll go into that in, in more detail next week. But the idea is that the offense that comes, when we are offended, we start to react in these ways that then creates these falling away, turning away from the faith, and that the love of most will grow cold. By the way, the love, the word love that is used in that verse is the word agape, which is referring to the love of God. He's not saying your love will grow cold. He says the love of God in you will grow cold when you respond to somebody in an unloving and an unforgiving way. So this is very important. This is such a snare a scheme, a thing that we have to pay attention to, that we have to pay close attention to what Jesus said, that in the last days, the church itself will be characterized by a lack of love and forgiveness, which means that we have to be even more vigilant to love and forgive, and to not allow our love to grow cold, but rather to live in fellowship with others in the body of Christ. I encourage you to keep praying, to keep reading, to keep preparing. This week, your point of application is just simply to commit to love and forgive. Maybe you don't know all the details of what that looks like, and maybe you're saying, well, you, you have no idea of what I'm going through. I don't. I don't know every situation that you're going through. I don't know who has hurt you. I don't know how long ago they hurt you. I don't know how much they've hurt you. I don't know what they're doing to continue to hurt you. But I do know that the word calls us to commit to love and forgive. And so this morning, that's the challenge. That even without knowing all of the details, that you would say, Lord God, I commit. I commit to love. And I commit to forgive. I commit to be led by the Holy Spirit to do what only you can help me to do. I can't do this in my strength. I simply am unable to do this by my own thinking. But I need your help. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word will, Lord, just be working in us through this week, especially as we commemorate what you have done for us. Lord, when you came into Jerusalem, intent setting your face on going to the cross for our sake. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and speak to us all this week. Prepare us. Get us ready. Lord, to be digging deep into this topic of love and forgiveness, these themes, and to say, Lord God, we want to live like this. We want to live like this. We want to live by your power, forgiving. Oh, Lord God, grant us grace for that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.